Welcome to Equestrian Movement's First Do No Harm podcast. I'm your host, Katie Boniface, co-founder of Equestrian Movement with Sarah Gallagher. We work with horse riders who want to build a stronger bond and a deeper connection with their horses. In our First Do No Harm podcast, we discuss with other industry professionals how to work with horses to firstly do no harm and secondly support their mental, emotional and physical well-being throughout the training process so that we have horses that enjoy learning and ask to be ridden. Each episode, we discuss the different influences our training can have and how we can improve our horses' overall athleticism, soundness of mind and body, and emotional fortitude, while strengthening and deepening our relationship with our horses. Each week, I will endeavor to bring to you a new episode on horse riding, training, handling and husbandry for an interview with other industry professionals to help you address where and why you might get stuck in creating the beautiful union of dancing souls that is the equestrian sport. Are you ready to kick off today's show? Let's get started. Hey team, welcome to episode 24 of the first Do No Harm podcast. Today we are sharing part two of our interview with Warwick Schiller. This has been such an incredible conversation about the work Warwick has been doing on himself and how that has translated through to the work he's been doing with his horses, particularly around connection-based training. In the first episode, Warwick talked about where these signs were coming up with his wife's horse, Sherlock, to look a little bit deeper. Curiosity peaked and Warwick started researching different theories that he wouldn't normally have dug into before. In this episode, we continue on the conversation around the work Warwick has been doing with himself and recognizing that he has spent a lot of his life shut down. Join us as Warwick discusses some of his experiences with the therapy that has translated to positive results in the way he works with his horses. The whole Sherlock thing, you know, getting back to him, what I figured out with him was he was just very, very shut down. Yeah which is why he had that level of tension. Like he didn't have explosive tension. He had inner tension, yeah. um, which I think is, it's better <laughs> than out of tension uh, just because it's safer. Yeah. But if you've got a horse who is shut down, when you bring them out of shutdown, they are going to have now have outer tension, outer yeah. view tension. So, and I think a horse that is really anxious, you know, they run around screaming, you know, whatever, they know they're in a mentally bad state. I think a shutdown horse doesn't. Yeah. And that's what that, that shutdown state's there for. You know, I went to Africa a few years ago, and before we went to Africa, I started looking at different videos on YouTube of wildlife and stuff, and I saw a video of a lion eating a wildebeest cow alive. And so she's, like, folded her front legs up, laying on the ground, and this lion is tearing chunks off her flank. And that cow's head wiggles every time the lion tears the chunk off her flank. But there's no outward sign of concern because she's gone to her happy place. I mean, that shutdown mode is there for a very, very, very good reason when what's going on is, is too much to be able to handle. And so, you know, when horses go into shutdown mode, whatever was going on was too much from the handle. But what you got to understand is when, the, when you bring them out of shutdown mode, they don't come from shutdown to good. They go from shutdown to now they're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> And the thing you have to be able to do is go, hey, I'm getting somewhere. And that's the hard thing. Yeah. That's, that's the hard thing. But what that Sherlock uh, did for me was made me realize I was shut down. Yeah. You know, I started listening to Brene Brown and she said that uh, in one of her books, she said that you cannot selectively suppress emotions if you 
suppress the lower ones, you automatically suppress the higher ones, the lower, the grief, the fear, the, all those sorts of things. If you suppress those, you automatically suppress the higher ones, the joy, the happiness and all that stuff. And, you know, as a male, I'm 54, thought I was 53, but yesterday my wife told me I'm 54. <laughs> um, you know, as a male of my generation growing up in Australia, you don't show fear. You know, you don't cry. You don't show fear. My family, you don't show grief. Like you get a funeral, like, oh, well, he died. Yeah. And you don't, growing up that way, you don't think anything about it. But when I listened to this Brene Brown book and it said, you cannot selectively suppress emotions. If you suppress the lower ones, you automatically suppress the higher ones. I thought, hmm, I know some of my lower ones are suppressed, but I never thought, could I have more joy, more happiness, more whatever. And so I, um, I asked someone, I, I'd met at a horse expo in another part of the US who's a therapist. And I said, so what would I do to, to work on this? If I want to work on that, would I go see a counselor or what? She said, I'd go and see someone who specializes in something called dialectical behavior therapy, which was originally started for highly suicidal adults. But now they, they um, use it for anybody with any emotional regulation issues. And so, I, you know, that started me down this whole therapist path. And what I found out from Sherlock, or Sherlock was, you know, I got a shut down horse and he helped me figure out that I was shut down and I didn't even know I was shut down. And so that, that whole, you know, sometimes in social media these days, you, I run into people who are what I call the newly woke. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they've learned about shutdown in horses. And if you've got a horse that's shut down, you're the devil, Yeah. you know, Hey, that shutdown is not a bad place to be. I've yeah. been there most of my life and I didn't even know I was there. Yeah. Now my wife is anxious. And she knows she's been anxious most of her life and she knew she knows she's anxious and has panic attacks. And, and so, you know, what you have to understand is shutdowns are probably a better place to be. But then on the flip side of that, you have to understand that shutdown is what happens after you are anxious and can't handle that. Yeah. And so it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a higher level of anxiety, but it's, I think it's a better place to live. <laughs> As actually um, my next set of questions was your experience regarding that. Um, I had this experience with my horse as a teenager and he taught me how to emotionally disconnect from the experience. So like um, to a point where, you know, if I got excited, if I got happy, if I felt any range of emotion, I knew I was falling off because <laughs> he, he couldn't handle me having any emotion. And so he taught me how to like breathe and control my heart rate and all that kind of thing before I even started down the path of meditation. And mm. um, he taught me how to emotionally disconnect. And I find that that is a really good place to train horses from is if you don't react then you're modeling non-reactive behavior to the horses and they tend to start following your lead and becoming less reactive themselves. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I haven't trained horses for the public for about five or six years now, but um, when I was training horses for the public, I had outwardly, I had no emotion, but inwardly, yeah. inwardly I had no emotion either, but it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a good place to be able to train horses from yeah, not not I ideal. <laughs> well, you know, it depends how you train them for. If you're training, because what I could do with horses is teach them that that don't pay attention to the emotions of the human. Yeah, just pay attention to the the, the outward things. And so, 
horses that I'd trained could put up with anxious people and not feed off it because yeah. I basically taught them don't pay attention to what I, what's going on in here because there's nothing going on here. Just pay attention to all this other stuff, you know, the, the, the aids basically. Yeah. And so it's, it's, a, it's not a bad way to, to train horses for the public, but, you know, those horses are, can be in a bit of a level of, of shutdown. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's not that bad a place to be. Yeah. You know, they're not, they're not catatonic to where they're just frozen. Yeah. That's too shut down. And like Sherlock, he was, he was probably on the, the furthest end of shutdown that I'd encountered. Oh, I probably counted, I encountered a couple of, uh, a Mustang over here and a, a Brumby at a clinic in Victoria about 10 or 12 years ago. And he was very shut down. I wish I knew now what I knew then, but he was, mm. But I only had him for a couple of days. So, you know, it wasn't like I had, it wasn't like it was in my wife's horse. Yeah. But um, so what was your next questions? Cause I probably got a lot to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So just continuing on from that experience, my current horse, Fiddy, uh, very ad- adamantly told me that that isn't a good place to train a horse from when it's your own horse. <laughs> so I really had to um, connect in with that experience of love to be able to go down into working with him and you know the way that like if you experience love for something it softens your face and it softens your body language and um like that's where you're going to start building bonds and connections and rapport with and if I go down into the paddock with my horse in a training mindset which is like my emotionally disconnected resting bitch face (laughs) he wants nothing to do with me but if like I take the time up at the you know the the hay room to like zen myself and you know okay what does love feel like again all right let go of today's like stresses and time restraints and whatnot and get yourself in that place to interact with him he's like completely different horse like you know he's definitely kind of on that spectrum of aggressive and my partner has no horse skills and when I was pregnant he was feeding him and he was chasing him out of the paddock like trying to eat him so it was it was a fun one to teach me that I needed to come into a training environment emotionally connected and not like drilling down the line. Right. Yeah. It's um how old are you? Uh 35. Yeah, so you're 20 years ahead of me. Like, you know, I've come across this stuff in the last few years. I mean, so you're ahead of the, way ahead of the game. <laughs> But I, but I think that's a bit of the culture in Australia, these, I mean, the world too. But, yeah. you know, back, I, I noticed, so we moved back to Australia from end of 2016 to 2010. And I started doing clinics in Australia in that time. And since then, I usually go back three or four times a year, maybe five times a year, except for last year. Um, I made it twice last year. Got to, went to Victoria in January and then, and then uh, I think New South Wales and South Australia in March. And then we are locked down the rest of the time. But what I noticed is like you go to the pub for tea or whatever and you go into the loo and on the wall, there's something about men's mental health. You know what I mean? And that was, that was never, you know, that was never a thing in Australia. So I think talking about this sort of stuff and being aware of this stuff is a lot more in the front of people's minds these days. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's more of a conversation these days that you can have quite easily rather than, then people are thinking, what the hell are you talking about? You know what I mean? <laughs> and, you know, I grew up like I was a kid in that, that like kind of probably time where you were, you know, in 
like starting out professionally in Australia, I imagine. And I remember what it was like then. Like it, it was really like, you know, you make your horse do what you need it to do. Otherwise it's unsafe. And you do have to like kind of reflect on, you know, where the, the parents from that generation come from. Like they're coming out of depression and war and oh, 13 there's kids. There's no blame. There's all no, of that kind of thing. And yeah, there's no like blame. Shaping um, the mindset yeah. of the next generation. And we're, we're so lucky, like COVID is the worst thing that's happened to us in so long that like we have the opportunity and the, the grace to understand that there's more to life than just survival. And as you said, like, you know, being able to experience those higher level emotions that actually make you feel good. And I think we have to like work on it. It's not, you can't wait for your environment to create the positive feelings. You have to kind of like connect into them yourself and find them in yourself. Yeah, and I think these, you know, these are things they should be teaching kids at school. You know what yeah. I mean? I um, really like your um, experience that you had going through the um, the air terminal with like checking. Uh, Maybe be happy. Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was at the end of a year of therapy. So that was two thousand end of two thousand. Oh, it was probably the end of two thousand eighteen or the beginning of two thousand nineteen. One of the other years. Yeah. So you were. Um, Checking your judgmental thoughts. Well, I'll turn the story about that. So I started in 2000. I took the year off from clinics in 2018 because we well, were going to do the World of Question Games. And so, um, you know, I was going to be on the road a fair bit trying to get qualified and all that sort of stuff. And that just happened to be the year that I I asked that, you know, I read that book by Renee Brown and asked that that therapist lady, what would I go do? And she said, go and see, the, you know, a dialectical behavior therapist. So I found one about an hour from here. And the first time I went up there, I told her what I wanted to do. And she goes, oh, yeah, this will be, be easy. She says, we also offer group therapy at night, but you won't need to do that. Anyway, about three, three months in, not getting anywhere, she said, you, know, you probably should uh, go to group therapy at night too. I'm like, okay. So I started doing that. And we used to have quite a bit of homework to do from that. And a lot of it had to do with it's the same thing you do training horses. You don't wait till you have a problem before you, before you design the, the, the solution of the problem. That should be part of your training. When a problem shows up, you've got the, the tool to fix it. And so they would give you emotional regulation tools to work on. And then if you happen to have an emotional outburst or something, you know, during the week, you get to use it. Anyway, I never did the homework because they go, so did you get to use it? Like, no, I'm sitting at home. Like, you know, um, but one of the, one of the homeworks we had to do one week was on counting judgmental thoughts. They said, so this week it's all about judgment. And they actually went around the room and they said, everybody in the room, can you, one at a time, can you identify three objects in the room? And I said, well, there's a chair, there's a funny looking lamp and there's a, and they said, whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm like, what? And they said, that was a judgment. I'm like, what was a judgment? And they go, that is not a funny looking lamp. You think it's funny looking. It's just a lamp. I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize I did that. And anyway, so they said, we want you to, this week, we want you to count judgmental thoughts each day. So get like one of them clickers, like the bouncers at the nightclub have, or put some rocks in your pocket or whatever. And when you have a judge, notice yourself having a judgmental thought, take your rock out of that pocket, move it to the other side. And I'm thinking, well, I'll have about three judgmental thoughts all day. So I'll just get three little rocks and stick in my pocket and I'll transfer them over. At the end of the day, I'll have three rocks in my pocket. And I had 21 before breakfast the first day. Yeah, I think I stopped counting after that because then I'm like, oh, um, yeah, I stopped counting, but I was still being aware of them. But the thing about 
counting your judgmental thoughts is you become aware of how many you have. And the other thing I found was you become aware of how many you have about yourself. And I think we're all our own worst enemies. And this really ties into what Brene Brown does because she's a shame researcher. And she says there's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is I did something stupid. Shame is I am stupid. And what we tend to do in our subconscious is you do something a bit ridiculous and you go, oh, you are so stupid. And then you start to believe that. Yeah. You are useless. You are, you can't ride. You shouldn't have a horse, whatever it might be. Um, but if you are aware of the fact that you go, oh, you're so stupid. And you go, hang on. Whoa, I just said that. I am not stupid. I just did something stupid. But next time that I mean that I'm not stupid. I just did something stupid, but I can make that decision differently next time. It doesn't, doesn't stay stuck. Yeah as a part of you. And I just, I didn't really, and I think we all do that. And I just didn't realize how much we did that. And when we went to the water question games that year, um, so we have a friend from New Zealand named Jane Pike and she's an equestrian mindset coach. And Jane came over with us and went to the water question games with us, but we worked with Jane during the year remotely from, she lives in New Zealand. And um, there was a, fair bit of work we did with her but one of the things she had us do was answer some questions like answer like a questionnaire sort of a thing and then she made an audio track for us to listen to different one for robin than for me and um it was about 35 minutes long we're supposed to listen to it quite often and you've got to have stereo headphones on when you do it she told us make sure you do that so i didn't know why but I, so the first time i listened to it i'm listening away and jane's yakking away about stuff and then about 10 minutes in, this Jane keeps talking, a different Jane shows up over here, having a completely different conversation. And then this one. And so you can't listen to both of them. You can only listen to one of them. Sometimes you just zone out and don't listen to any of them. And I, I didn't realize what that thing was doing. But a lot of the conversation in that audio was about limiting self-beliefs and stuff like that. Yeah. So we go to the World of Question Games. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be on the team because, you know, a lot of the guys who are better than I am couldn't, you know, it's a campaign to qualify for wigs, I think. And so couldn't do it, couldn't get the horsepower or couldn't, you know, it's a financial drain too. just couldn't get it done. So I was lucky enough to be on the team, but I'm not the best guy, you know? And so when we went to the world of question games, our chef to quit uh, Rodney Peachy said to both Robin and I, so what do you think you can score on these horses? Because the other two members of the team were Martin and Shauna Larkham, and we know they're amazing. And so Rodney's pretty sure what they can do. He's trying to figure out, you know, because Australia's been skirting around a bronze medal for, you know, all the last two weeks before that. There are only two before that. But, um, and I said, you know what? If everything goes right for both of us, I'd say we could be a 217 and a half, which we'd need more than that to to be in the bronze medal. But anyway, that's what my prediction was. So we do the first round and I'm a 217 and Robin's a 218. And it was weird. I mean, so we were close to what we thought we could do if everything goes right. And it was kind of the weirdest sensation because I've never been that relaxed competing at all ever. Yeah. Ever, ever. And it's a bloody world of question games. Like your ass cheeks are supposed to be clamped pretty tight shut, you know? <laughs> and it was just this surreal zen moment and so for the reigning the top from the so that's the the uh, team medal round and then from the team medal round they have 20 in the individual finals 
Well, the top 15 from the team medal round go back to the finals. And then that top uh, 16 to 35 go into semifinals. And then the top five of those go back to the individual finals. And so we made the, Robin and I both made the semifinals. I made the semifinals in last place. So I was 35th. And I go in there and I'm a 220 and Robin's a 220 and a half. So I'm three and a half points higher than I was the first round. And I'm two and a half points higher than I think I could possibly do on my best day. Yeah. And Robin's two and a half points higher than, than her first round score and, and a full three points higher than what we thought we could do. And once again, it was this just surreal relaxed in the moment everything's perfectly slow you're not nervous and it was weird and afterwards i'm thinking what what the hell happened like that was and anyway we almost made the individual final at the water question games robin was sixth and i was seventh i think and they took the top five but we were leading it there for quite a while which is kind of fun um having the having us up on the big scoreboard first and second with the australian flag was pretty cool yeah um, anyway, so I start thinking about what was different. Why, you know, I'm trying to figure this stuff out. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, something was missing. I'm like, what was missing? Well, what wasn't there? And then I realized, holy cow, every time I've ever competed, there's this big little voice in the back of my head that goes, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? You suck. You're not good enough to do this. Yeah. But it's in your subconscious. Conscious, consciously, I knew what I can do. I knew what my horse can do. And I'm confident in that. But I didn't realize that in the background it's what jane calls the itty bitty shitty committee was going on and so it wasn't there and what i realized was it's always been there so that's those negative thoughts and you know that negative self-judgment stuff and so i ended up finding out from jane that 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 audio we listened to was a hypnosis yeah she's trained in nlp hypnosis all sorts of different things but that was a hypnosis thing and and the the voice you're not listening to goes in your subconscious. Yeah. So you might listen to this one for a while. You might listen to this one for a while. Both were talking about limiting self-beliefs. Yeah. They were just different conversations. And that all tied in with that whole judgmental, th- you know, the thing from my therapy about judgmental thoughts and the Brene Brown thing about reframing guilt, uh, shame into guilt. And, you know, yeah, it was just the whole thing. But what you mentioned about the airport. So at the end of that year, when I started traveling again, I'm walking through an airport, first airport I'm in, and I'm walking along and because I'm more aware of my thoughts now, and I all, I've always known I'm a people watcher, but what I realize is I'm not watching these people. I'm judging these people. I'm, I'm not looking at the best thing about them. I'm looking at the worst thing about them. Like, do you even have a mirror? Like, did you look at yourself before you left the house this morning? You're wearing way too many clothes. You're not wearing enough clothes. You've obviously got some daddy issues, you know, you know all that sort of shit that goes on. And I realized I was doing it. So I'm like, stop, what? Stop. Okay. So I decided what I'm going to do now is every person that walks past me going the other way, I'm going to look them in the eye, give them a little eye smile and think to myself, may you be happy. And I did that all the way down to my gate. And when I got to the gate, I had this completely different feeling inside me than I'd probably ever had. And it was this light, airy feeling and then i realized i've always had this dull heavy feeling that was such a part of me i didn't even know it was there it's just like that itty bitty shitty committee that i always competed with but i didn't know it was there because it's always been there and you don't even you're not aware of it and uh yeah that was a that was like a 
and that was that whole year, all that stuff I did that year kind of um, did a lot of that. But what I had started noticing after that, when I started doing clinics again, someone would have a horse that's, you know, it's a bit uptight on the end of the lead rope. And in the past, they would hand it to me and I would fix it. I would do something and get rid of all that. And what I started noticing was, I go, well, hand him over here and I'll show you what I would do here. And they hand me the horse. And when I take a hold of the lead rope, those horses will just yeah. <laughs> soften. A lot of times they would come up and sniff me somewhere in here, like in my solar plexus abdomen region, like come up and I'm like, hey, how's it going? And I don't have to do anything. And it was, it was just weird because that's not me. That's, you know, I have techniques that work. Yeah. And I've always just relied on techniques and, you know, and I wasn't terrible. I wasn't very um, natural at the horse training thing. So I had to be able to completely understand something from, you know, I'm a needed detailed instruction sort of thing to be able to get things to work. And I'd always been a, you know, I've got all these steps. I used to say at clinics, you know, I'm not very talented, but I can get a lot of stuff done because I have a process. And if you can do all these steps, bit by bit by bit by bit by bit like say you have to do like in if you've done your clicker training and you thin slicing like you've got to do these tiny little steps and i'd always done that with but with you know pressure and release but i'd always done these tiny little steps but suddenly i get these horses that are responding to me and i'm not i'm not doing anything to them so this is this is a year or so after the mustang you know what i mean so i'm starting to realize that how I've showed up in the past has been an influencing factor on this. How we all show up in the past, you know, how we all show up is, is quite an influencing factor in these horses. And so, yeah, so that's the story about how I came to make the video about the, the airport and the may you be happy thing. So that's it for part two of four with our interview with Warwick Schiller. Stay tuned for the last two episodes of this interview. If you're wanting to follow him in his journey of self-discovery and connection training with his horses, You can follow him on YouTube, subscribe to his podcast, The Journey On, or follow his trainings on Facebook. The links are in the bio. Until next time, happy trails. If you're loving what you're listening to on the podcast, you might be starting to recognize that trying to control your horse through submission-based training is the worst way to ask your horse to look after you. If you're working with or riding horses, you know how unpredictable and sometimes scary they can be. Unfortunately, most struggling horse riders make the mistake of thinking they can physically control their 400 plus kilo fur babies by moving their feet or spooking them into responding with flags and join up. Without giving your horse a reason to care about you and look after you, you will most likely end up with a horse that is disconnected at best, shut down or explosive at worst because they can't communicate their needs with you. Especially if you are already scared, worried or nervous handling your horse. That's why we've created our new free online training experience, building a connection with your horse. This is how I've gone about creating safe horses for beginners, no matter the breed or previous handling experiences. If you want to learn the secret source behind developing safe horses that care about you and look after you without trauma triggering training methods, register for our new training today at www.equestriummovement.com forward slash connection. And I will uncover the three big mistakes you might be making if you're trying to build a relationship with your horse and how you can start building your horse's trust and confidence in you as a leader worth following.